George! I, uh, I want you all to know. I want you all to know that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our leader, our Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. The uh, topic today is an adversary that poses a threat, serious threat to security of the United States of America. Our challenge is to transform not just the way we deter and defend, but the way we conduct our daily business. Let's make no mistake. The modernization of the Department of Defense is a matter of some urgency. In fact, it could be said that it's a matter of life and death, ultimately, every American. Every dollar we spend was entrusted to us by a taxpayer who earned it by creating something of value with sweat and skill. A cashier in Chicago, a waitress in San Francisco, an average American family works an entire year to generate $6,000 in income taxes. Here we spill many times that amount every hour by duplication and by inattention. That's wrong. It's wrong because national defense depends on public trust and trust in turn hinges 
on respect for the hardworking people of America and the tax dollars they earn. Our financial systems are decades old. According to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion in transactions. We need your help. I ask for your help. I thank all of you who are already helping. I have confidence that we can do it. It's going to be hard. There will be rough times, but it's also the best part of life to be engaged in doing something worthwhile. Every person within earshot wants to be a part of a proud organization, an organization that cares about excellence in everything it does. I know it. You know it. Let's get about it. Thank you very much. This was a pivotal moment in our history in which we as a collective were terrorized and it was the day that we gave up our rights to privacy, our rights to demand transparency, all in the name of safety. We were told, and we are still being told, that jet fuel can actually melt steel. We are also told that the Saudis had involvement. We are also being told that, and convinced, and they even made diagrams and videos and wrote full reports to Congress on how a terrorist's passport busted out through the exploding plane within the building and flew a couple of blocks down to be found intact by a passerby in a business suit and handed over to an official. And that's how they knew who was on there. It's horrific to think that the government would manipulate or any nation's government would manipulate their people and kill innocent people to serve a purpose. But let's be honest, in war that happens all the time. When missiles fly, when nerve gases are used, when bombs are dropped, lots of innocent people die. I mean, the A-bomb in Japan killed a lot of little kids while they were playing with their dollies in their bedroom. This is the reality. This is the ugly side of war. And what happened on 9-11 was an act of war. That is fact. Anyone saying it was just a horrible terror attack or like Ilhan Omar says some people did some things is just despicable. This was an act of war. And who did that? Many will say it was Osama bin Laden. And you know, I there's, there's not evidence to support or deny that. But yeah, okay. 
Others will tell you it was the Saudis. But if it was the Saudis, then how's Osama involved? Because Osama was denounced by the Saudis. So everyone keeps having all these theories. Lots of people loathe Rudy Giuliani, saying he was in on it too. Rudy Giuliani said, and I quote, we were able to move 150 dump trucks out of the city last night, which will give you a sense of the work that was done overnight. And that one statement of him talking about how they were getting things done was used to demonstrate what? That he was the bad guy? What? That he was at World Trade Center 7, trapped, and he said, oh, we heard that maybe the towers are falling, so we tried to leave, and then the building collapsed, and it was hit, and we finally got out. And then people saying, hey, you had said that the buildings were going to collapse. You knew about it. Why didn't you tell anyone? You sat on that information for 15 minutes. Why didn't you tell us while you were trying to find an escape route with everyone else in emergency management? If you were in a building that was collapsing around you, your city was literally on fire. You were sitting there with your fire and police commissioner trying to figure out what you're going to do. You're an island because that's what Manhattan is, an island. And you're waiting to see what aid you can get because right now there is a threat assessment. They blocked out. No travel through the tunnels. No travel through bridges. We have now been isolated. My island is isolated. All these people are relying on the decisions we make. And then they're hearing the towers might collapse and then boom, they're in a building that has just undergone some explosion or something and they're trying to get out. It was sketchy, it was weird, and it was just confusing. What happened? Any idea how this happened? No, no, not, not right now, not right now. Correspondent April Woodard was already there when she encountered Mayor Rudy Giuliani who was getting his first look at the disaster. Unless you were there with Rudy Giuliani, his police commissioner, his fire chiefs, everything, you wouldn't know what happened. Unless you were in the building or in one of those planes, you really, really don't know what happened. You just know a version of it, the version that they tell you. Kind of like the story of the magic passports found in 9-11. Another development on Saturday, New York officials revealed at a news conference here in the city that a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. No other details were given, but the discovery prompted the FBI and police to expand their, the search area down in lower Manhattan. So we'll never know, but here's what we do know. We do know that on 9-11, all these people lost their lives. We do know that there were planes possibly hijacked, but these planes cut through steel like butter. And not only that, jet fuel suddenly was able to melt steel. Consecutive explosions, you know, happened. Never ever in a steel building has it collapsed because of a fire. You know, your foundations have to have an issue. So was it collapsed? So 9-11 is always gonna be a question mark. So all of this is happening and suddenly they descend. Who descends? The federal government. This is a matter of national security. So you're the mayor and in your house, in your backyard, this happens. And in comes the federal government and says, don't worry, we'll investigate it. Stay out of it. And you're proud because you want to make it normal again for your people. You want them to know that, hey, this happened. We're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to clean it up. We can pick up. We're resilient. Let's do this. 
You're giving that sense to your people. The federal government is hauling rubbish like nobody's business, like he said. A New York resident had said at the time, wow, it's crazy out there. These trucks just keep coming. It doesn't stop. They're just coming and coming and coming and coming and taking all the rubbish because that was evidence, right? Because let's remember, this was the biggest crime scene ever in global history. The most public and the biggest crime scene under the jurisdiction of the FBI. The biggest crime scene. We had the most life lost, the most property damage and insurance claim lost in U.S. fire history. Fire history. This crime scene should have been isolated, sanitized, documented, and done so thoroughly, correct? Yes, it was 2001. We didn't have the tech we have today, but would they preserve every single thing that was there to determine what was going on? You would believe that this crime scene, which was so massive, would be carefully orchestrated by the federal government. The investigation the feds completed on Tower 7, that documentation, that evidence cataloged correctly one by one so we can figure one hair you find you place you put so that way you can find what happened. You would test for every single type of residue, jet fuel, explosives, Thermite, because thermite does melt steel. You would be very careful, right? That's how you do it. You ensure that you preserve that crime scene. But guess what? It wasn't done. It wasn't done. When we want to point fingers, we point fingers to the people that had the power to do something. We point fingers to the people that led the investigations into this, that were responsible for the cataloging of evidence, for subpoenaing witnesses, for taking testimony, for analyzing every single hair, paper clip, shoe, finger, whatever it is they collected with those dump trucks. And there was one person that was responsible. We are, as I said, beginning the hearings today in the nomination of Robert S. Mueller III to be director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, frankly, one of the most important positions in our government. He has had an outstanding career in law enforcement, served as a federal prosecutor in three different U.S. attorney's offices. He served in Maine justice under both Republican and Democratic administrations. For Mr. Mueller and for this committee and for the nation this is more than a job interview because we're at a crucial juncture for the fbi and well beyond an interview in many ways this hearing will be a redefinition of the job of the fbi director Senator Hatch, members of the committee, uh, thank you for the extraordinary courtesy and support that you have extended to me over the past several weeks. I want to especially express my appreciation to you, Mr. Chairman, for your willingness to schedule this hearing and begin the formal consideration of my nomination. 
I was deeply honored uh, when President Bush decided to nominate me for the position of director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. In my view, the FBI is the finest law enforcement agency in the world. Its highly skilled and dedicated workforce and its investigative tools and resources are unmatched in law enforcement. I consider it the highest privilege to be asked to lead such an outstanding organization. And that person used over 40 million U.S. dollars, issued tens of thousands of subpoenas, questioned countless individuals, destroyed evidence, lied, and kept the Trump presidency hostage for over two years. The testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief. So help you God. And after such a thorough investigation into one simple matter, without evidence like pieces of wall or maybe an airplane, if there was one, black boxes, paper clips, explosive residue, fire, analysis, didn't have any of that. It was all hearsay, right? It was all fake dossiers and the word of agents. Came up with zero Russia collusion, right? Two years, very thorough, wasn't it? Super thorough. Then why is it that that same person that was responsible for the 9-11 investigation used very little money and closed the investigation on 9-11 within three weeks? That same person, Robert Mueller, responsible for the no collusion hoax investigation, was responsible in determining what happened during 9-11. The evidence on the dump trucks, never cataloged. The steel that was left over with residue that you could have run through some tests to see. Was it jet fuel? Was it what they say is thermite that melts steel? Not there either. That steel was resold to China. On September 4th, 2001, Robert Mueller was sworn in as FBI director under George Bush. That was one of George Bush's biggest mistakes because only a couple years later, they would show him who's really president. I want to thank you all for practicing reading so much. It is really important. Few days before Mueller was sworn in, when it was pretty much set in stone that he was going to be FBI director, John O'Neill was the deputy director of the FBI that resigned just a couple of days before Mueller took over. He had everything on Osama bin Laden from Somalia that had happened over a decade before 9-11. He was the guy that investigated the bombings of the World Trade Center in 1993. And then again in Saudi Arabia, our base that was bombed in 1996. And I'll tell you, that was horrific. He resigned just as Mueller was going to take office because he did not approve of where the agency was at. He did not like the direction that the agency, the FBI and the CIA had taken under the Clinton administration. And even before that, he was very open about it. I had a fairly low opinion of our headquarters throughout my whole career. <laughs> it seemed like, you know, the headquarters was a very negative place where 
they would find a million reasons why you couldn't do something as opposed to why you could do something. And, uh, it was not the type of place where uh, you always felt you were getting a lot of assistance. John was the opposite of that. John, you could talk to and you could tell John what you needed, and John would get it. O'Neill headed the FBI's anti-terrorism office in New York City leading up to 9-11. He had spent years investigating bin Laden and then stepped down just days before the attacks. His new job? Head of security for the World Trade Center. That's where he was on September 11th. He actually got out of the building because he made some phone calls outside of the building and he said, I'm out of the building. And then they, they regrouped a number of officials um, that from the World Trade Center, from the, from the New York Police Department, regrouped and went back in the building to really get people out and to keep everything moving and to they had sort of a semi-command post set up. And that's when the building went down. That guy had taken the role head of security for the Twin Towers because he felt that that was under threat he felt that that was the most vulnerable position. Everything in his body told him that if something were to happen, it was going to happen there first. Because the message, either that be from terrorists or terrorists aided by our own people so they can guide to what they need, and those were his words the night before, would be there. Obviously, he's dead now. He had information. This is why he took that position at the World Trade Center. There was information, and the thing is, he didn't know if it was coming from home or if it was coming from abroad. Mueller did not examine the largest crime scene there is. He didn't go through any of the evidence, and even if he says that he did, three weeks is not enough to parse through all that rubble. All they tell us is look at the video. I've seen videos, I mean... Tulsi Gabbard was on TV talking, and while she was talking, her zit disappeared. And I can tell you personally, the TV showed a plane coming in that would have flown over my head as I was watching. I saw the explosion in the second tower. I didn't see the plane fly over my head to hit the tower. Well, a few minutes after the explosion, with words that flashed across the screen saying live while the explosion happened it wasn't on tv and they knew that they knew people on the ground weren't watching television and watching the tower only some of us were some of us that were at a place where they had it in their view they could see and were in an area that had multiple televisions you know around the room According to the TV screen, it would have had to fly over my head to hit that tower, and I didn't see it. But I saw it on your screen almost two minutes after the explosion happened. Many will say, maybe you weren't looking. Maybe. But I'm telling you what I saw. And there are many of us in New York that feel the same way, but many of us cannot prove it because maybe we were in panic. Really hard to convince me that that plane cut through steel like butter. Regardless if this was an operation done in conjunction with terrorists or allowing a terrorist attack to happen to ensure that we didn't have a civil war, to help excuse the tanking of the economy, because remember... 
Bush Jr. took office after Bill Clinton and the Clinton administration was the hottest mess ever. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. At the time of him undergoing impeachment proceedings for raping Monica Lewinsky, I'm telling you it was rape. No woman holds on to a dress with semen, period. We had the corrupt Clintons, terrorist attacks, like nobody's business throughout their administration. Saudi Arabia, our bases, embassies, wars declared. If it was a video game, I would have orchestrated it in order to reset the nation under my terms. It seems like every single time there is a tragedy, every single time there is something that has happened in the past 30 years, it's the same damn people that keep popping up. I mean, when looking into the Taliban and the bombings in Kenya and Tanzania, isn't it incredible how all of these people that played a role in the Russia collusion investigations in one way or another seem to lead back to the same clowns the same ones aside from the clintons being in the center of almost everything we got Mueller and comey like they're like this eternal couple popping up everywhere there's some direct relationship with all of these why did Mueller obstruct congress from putting forward a 9-11 probe ask yourself that how did he just assume, yo, those are the hijackers. We found one passport and it's all these guys. Let me tell you something. So you found the Saudi passports and everything, right? Didn't Jeffrey Epstein have a Saudi passport? Means you can make passports that look like Saudi Arabia. Back then it might have been a little bit harder, but with the money Epstein had, he could forge whatever he wanted, right? It's not like we had biometrics in place at the time. It's not like when you would walk through the airport, they could hear your breath at Starbucks before you even go through TSA. So back then it was different. Again, kind of like that blanket. Whoop, these Russians, these 13 Russians did it. Where are these Russians? Are we going to see them? Same thing he did with these hijackers. Do they exist? Do they not exist? Oh, we have all this audio. So you got the audio, but you don't have the black boxes. Where are all the black boxes? Those are supposed to be able to survive everything, unless it's thermite. Take two. Take two and two. One. This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! Why is it that he blocked the investigation? Why didn't New York law enforcement, New York fire department, why weren't they allowed to analyze the scene? Why was it all handed over to the FBI and why did they just dispose of it? I mean, think about it. Why were we reselling steel? And how did steel buildings fall down? They don't fall or burn. So why did we decide that we needed to topple them completely and remove the rubbish in like a heartbeat? Because that area was cleaned out super quick. 
the fateful decision to let two men board a flight instead of taking the next one. Nearly 20 years ago, a ticket agent made that fateful decision. They became two of the 9-11 hijackers. And as Gio Benitez reports, that agent has been riddled with guilt in the years since, but he decided to make a difference in another way. Two late-arriving first-class passengers came rushing through the doors at Dulles International Airport in Virginia. They're late, they stop, they were confused, they were looking back and forth, and then they made a, made a beeline for where I was working with my agents. Vaughn was at the American Airlines ticket counter, training two agents. We were just sitting around, and two late passengers came running in the terminal, stopped, and... I was joking, I looked at, at my agents and I said, watch, these two are for flight 77, and they were. But as we now know, they weren't just any passengers. They were Salem and Nawaf al-Hazmi, two of the five hijackers on flight 77, which later crashed into the Pentagon. When Atta's picture was plastered all over TV after the 9-11 attacks. And I said, holy bleep. I know that guy. I called up my partner and I said, did you see that guy that they're showing? And he goes, yeah, that guy was in our office. July 2001, Mike Chiarelli and his partner had a plane like this one for sale. It was an Antonov. It's a Russian cargo plane. It's not a jet, but it's a big plane. Mohamed Ada came in interested in the plane because the story was at the time he was going to open a jump uh, parachute jump school. Chiarelli says he spent an hour plus with Mohamed Atta at the Pompano Air Park. He knew exactly what he was looking for. And Atta wasn't alone. The other two guys stayed silent. They really didn't do anything. They just kept walking around the plane and like inspecting. He was in the cockpit with me. He was talking. He, he knew what he was doing. He wanted to see logbooks. He wanted to know fuel information, how far he could fly. I believe that they were doing some kind of research. So the question is, how did these clowns get in here and why did most of them fly from Boston? I'm just saying. And when they came here, who sponsored them to come into the country? How come Mueller doesn't have that information? How did they get here? How did all these people slip in and come in? If we're awake right now, and I believe that the American citizens have open their eyes no matter how terrifying or upsetting or angry you might be it is time that we ask these questions and push on these questions obviously now Mueller's card is that he's senile he's totally senile he's not going to remember but why not show us the documentation that O'Neill put forward why not make his resignation public it's incredible how all of this happened and how everyone targeted the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who were very rich at the time, had extreme power over the oil industry and monopolized it. And this is why we were intervening in the Middle East, because they were a problem for the agenda of this new world order on how they would grab the Middle East. Because if you controlled it, you controlled the direction of nations as a whole on the planet, at least for the next 50 years. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and Cold War. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, 
we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. This is a structural reevaluation of the collapse of the World Trade Center 7 building. This is the final report that was done from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, South Carolina Department of Transportation, Associate Professor of Nanjing University, Department of Civil Engineering, Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. This was prepared, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. This is an actual report that was issued in March of 2020. This report represents the findings and conclusions of a four-year study of the collapse of the World Trade Center Building 7, a 47-story building that suffered a total collapse at 5.20 p.m. on September 11, 2001, following the horrible events that morning. The objective of the study was threefold. Examine the structural response of the World Trade Center 7 to fire loads that may have occurred on September 11, 2001, rule out scenarios that could not have caused the observed collapse and identify types of failures and their locations that may have caused the total collapse to occur as observed. So they go into detail of how they get this done in this their abstract and their citations and schematics because they have a lot of figures. So their first finding, here's what they did find. Near simultaneous failure of every column explains a collapse, you mean explosive placed at the foundations to bring down the columns. This conclusion is based primarily upon the finding that the simultaneous failure of all core columns over eight stories followed 1.3 seconds later by the simultaneous failure of all exterior columns over eight stories produces almost exactly the behavior observed on the videos of the collapse whereas no other sequence of failures that we simulated produced the observed behavior. We cannot completely rule out the possibility that an alternative scenario may have caused the observed collapse. However, the near simultaneous failure of every column is the only scenario we identified that was capable of producing that behavior. I hope you understood that. If this wasn't coordinated and it wasn't planned, would they have had time to set up explosive to have near simultaneous failure of all the columns. I want you to think about it. Would they have had time? Did they like sit there and say, holy crap, all these people are jumping out of buildings and all these planes came in and this is so scary and we're terrified and we don't know how this is gonna respond. Is the whole building gonna fall? Like is all of New York gonna be wiped out? What if there's a nuclear bomb on the plane? Something. Right. So while they're doing that, they're planning a controlled demolition at World Trade Center 7. Come on. Are we serious? They did a thorough study. So thorough. It's like beyond thorough. This was a government building, pretty much. Can we agree on that? This was a government operation. Can we all agree on that? The principal conclusion of our study is that fire did not cause the collapse of World Trade Center 7 on 9-11, contrary to the conclusions of NIST and private engineering firms that study the collapse, meaning all of these other agencies, companies, contractors said whatever they were told to say. This was an extreme cover-up because your own government did it. I know people don't like to hear that. I know we want to say that it was other people. I know we do. But this is the bare naked truth. 
and these people are still making money off of you. They are still out free while they did this to us. They ushered people to enslave themselves with this whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a a difficult moment for America. I, um, unfortunately, will be going back to Washington after my remarks. Secretary of Rod Page and Lieutenant Governor will take the podium and discuss education. I do want to thank the folks here at at, uh, Booker Elementary School for their hospitality. Uh, Today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families and and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. 9-11 was highly orchestrated. And I'll tell you where my personal knowledge kicks in, okay? This is the story of a 30-year search by U.S. intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. Welcome, Welcome to the CIA. Thank you for I remember that day very well. It was an uncommonly warm January day in 1976 when George H.W. Bush arrived at the CIA headquarters to take over as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. On which I am about to enter. So help you God, so help me God. Restoration of public confidence is essential if we are to get on about our important work here. Sir, uh, the Republicans are trying to blame you for the existence of a small air base at Mena, Arkansas. This base was set up by George Bush and Oliver North and uh, the CIA to help the Iran-Contras, and they brought in plane load after plane load of cocaine there for sale in the United States. And then they took the money and bought weapons and took them back to the Contras, all of which was illegally, as you know, under the Bolin Act. But tell me, did they tell you that this had to be in existence because of national security? Well, let me answer the question. No, they didn't tell me anything about it. They didn't say anything to me about it. The airport in question and all the events in question were the subject of state and federal inquiries. It was primarily a matter for federal jurisdiction. The state really had next to nothing to do with it. The local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was within the jurisdiction of state law. The rest of it was under jurisdiction of the United States attorneys who were appointed successively by previous administrations. We had nothing, zero, to do with it, and everybody who's ever looked into it knows that. John Brennan used to be the CIA advisor to Bill Clinton. He advised Clinton of everything the CIA was doing in the 90s. That was his career. He's been in the agency forever and a day. Now, as John Brennan worked as the intelligence briefer 
he did it right after he was in charge of the CIA's counter-terrorist center. Under Bush and Reagan, he was just a, a trainee, I guess, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. He was uh, working at the embassies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because it was in 1980 that he actually supposedly joined the CIA. It was a little bit before that, but officially it was 1980. And he joined the Directorate of Intelligence in 82. I know this from talking with him. He explained to me his position as an attache in Jeddah in the uh, mid 80s, just right before 1985, I guess. And then he started to work on APAC after that under the end of uh, Bush's terms. Well, Bush Sr. was a three-term president, we know that, but Reagan slash Bush, right? He then, under the Clinton era, uh, was moved out of the counter-terrorist center to be a briefer. And in 95, he got his position as executive assistant to George Tenet. And one thing I've never told anyone is that one of the most important people that I met under my first disguise was George Tenet. And he didn't recognize that I was in disguise, which was the reason that I was in disguise. I want to announce uh, my intention to nominate George Tennant, who is standing here with me with his family, currently the acting director of the CIA as the director of Central Intelligence. He brings a wealth of experience and skill to the challenge of leading our intelligence community into the 21st century. Beginning in 1995, he served with real distinction as deputy director under John Deutsch. Prior to that, he was my senior aide for intelligence at the National Security Council. He did a superb job of helping to set out our intelligence priorities for new challenges. And at the CIA, he has played a pivotal role in putting these priorities into place and leading the intelligence community in meeting the demands of the post-Cold War world. As the longtime staff director of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, George Tenet understands the essential role Congress must play in the intelligence community's work. Then we come to March 5th, same year, 2000. And the CIA learns some additional information, very critical information. On March 5th, the CIA learns that Hazmi had actually entered the United States on January 15th, seven days after leaving the Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia. So now the CIA knows Hazmi is in the United States, but the CIA still doesn't put Hazmi or Midhar on the watch list and still does not notify the FBI about a very critical fact. A known Al-Qaeda operative, we're at war with Al-Qaeda, a known Al-Qaeda operative got into the United States. My question is, do you know specifically why the FBI was not notified of that critical fact at that time? The, the cable that came in from the field at the time, sir, was labeled information only, and I know that nobody read that cable. But my question is, do you know why the FBI was not notified of the fact that an Al-Qaeda operative now was known in March of the year 2000 yes. to have entered the United States? Why, was the CIA, why did the CIA not specifically notify the CIA? That's my question. The FBI. Sir, if we, were, we weren't aware of it, when it came in the headquarters, we couldn't have notified them. Nobody read that cable in March, in the March time frame. 
so that the cable that said that Hazmi had entered the United States came to your headquarters, nobody read it? Yes, sir. It was an information-only cable from the field, and nobody read that information-only cable. Should it have been read? Yes, of course, in hindsight. In um, late 97 uh, is when I first met and came in contact with John Brennan. He was the CIA chief in Saudi Arabia. Joining me now is the former director of the CIA, John Brennan, and he's a one-time station chief in Saudi Arabia. Director Brennan, welcome back to Meet the Press. Good morning, Chuck. As I was uh, sort of joking with my staff earlier, it seems as if in the early parts of the Obama administration, if there was a problem between the Obama administration and Saudi Arabia, you were the one sent to try to uh, mediate the situation. Uh, One thing that was being put forward in conversation was the fact that you know there was an overwhelming amount of people applying for visas and this was about a little over a year after the kabar towers bombing today the fbi got to work in dahran gathering the scorched twisted pieces of a fuel truck loaded with explosives that ripped the front off the eight-story military dorm exposing just how vulnerable u.s troops are here Officials say more than 3,000 pounds of explosive power was packed into that truck that parked along a fence just 35 yards from the building. A huge bomb, the military admits, its intelligence information gave no reason to anticipate. First, I ask every American to take a moment today to say a prayer for the victims and their families and to rededicate ourselves to the fight against terrorism. 19 are confirmed dead, all Americans. Now, as I head to Lyon, my first order of business will be to focus the strength and the energy of the G7 on the continuing fight against terrorism. Let me be very clear. We will not resist, we will not rest in our efforts to find who is responsible for this outrage, to pursue them and to punish them. Anyone who attacks one American attacks every American. Being kind of wet behind the ears, right? And young and in between training sessions, I um, had conversations with people there uh, right before I was leaving for training again back to the States. And one thing they told me was they found that um, the station chief, Brennan, was signing off visas to people that were barred from entering, like they failed or they were on a list from the original list that the State Department had to not get visas and he clearly overrid them. And I thought to myself, maybe they're assets, maybe this is this, right? So I actually asked that question prior to leaving to go back to the States where I went to Arizona and then to two Air Force bases. I remember that one of the guys that was down in Saudi Arabia had come to the Air Force base in California and he was then going to Diego Garcia. And I mentioned to him on the base, you know, it was, I found it really bizarre, but they're probably assets, you know, of the agency and maybe those people that have been flagged 
were for that reason. And he goes, well, we've been told to not allow people that have specific skills to go in. So that was just the conversation and they found it odd. So people were chatting about it, but it turned out because he was chatting about it, he was now being moved to Diego Garcia. That was funny. Fast forward, the bombing happens. And so if we have this bombing, right, obviously the Saudis hate us. And the more interesting part was that when this bombing happened, a move that was unexpected is something that I saw happen in 97 when I was there. They had pushed forward a program of fast-tracking visas. Now, when I tell you fast-tracking visas, we're talking giving people visas without checking their backgrounds. And that felt really alarming. So just so you understand how long this has been going on, you must understand that this visa program was never actually approved. It was a CIA agency push. And this was done after the bombing. And you would say, that makes no sense. If they hate us, why are we fast tracking visas for people that hate us and have just exploded us? That makes zero sense. Why would John Brennan step in after the bombing, after being the executive assistant to George Tenet? Why would he come to Saudi Arabia and expedite visas? And this was unofficial, right? Unofficial. At least two of the 9-11 hijackers had been recruited into a joint CIA-Saudi intelligence operation that was covered up at the highest level, according to a new court filing, and this comes from the Gray Zone, Kit Clarenberg. A newly released court filing raises grave questions about the relationship between Alex Station and a CIA unit set up to track AI al-Qaeda chief Osama bin Laden and his associates and two 9-11 hijackers leading up to the attacks which was subject to a cover-up at the highest levels of the FBI obtained by spy talk the filing is a 21-page declaration by Don Canestero a lead investigator for the Office of Military Commissions the legal body overseeing the cases of 9-11 defendants it summarizes classified government discovery disclosures and private interviews he conducted with anonymous high-ranking CIA and FBI officials many agents who spoke to Canestero headed up Operation Encore the Bureau's aborted, long-running probe into Saudi's government's connections to the 9-11 attack. Despite conducting multiple lengthy interviews with a range of witnesses, producing hundreds of pages of evidence, formally investigating several Saudi officials, and launching a grand jury to probe a Riyadh-run U.S.-based support network for the hijackers, Encore was abruptly terminated in 2016. This was purportedly due to a Byzantine intra-FBI bust-up over investigative methods. This summer, Brett Eagleson went to Capitol Hill to press the U.S. government to release secret files from the FBI's 9-11 case. We've told the sad story for 19 years. You know, we've cried on camera. Eagleson's father, Bruce, worked in and died in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Now grief has turned to rage. You know, it's not about that anymore. 
It's about how we're angry. We're pissed off. It is painful. The Eaglesons and other 9-11 families want details of a secret FBI investigation codenamed Operation Encore, centered on the two hijackers that lived in San Diego. It's a 10-year-long investigation that specifically investigated the role that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia played in supporting the hijackers. Is that the first mosque they went to in San Diego? This is it right here on our left. Danny Gonzalez was an FBI agent who worked on Operation Encore. He showed us the neighborhood the hijackers lived in before they crashed American Airlines Flight 77 into the Pentagon. This is Gonzalez's first television interview about the case. 19 hijackers cannot commit 3,000 mass murders by themselves. Based on what you found, do you believe there was a domestic support network for the hijackers? Obviously. No question. But I can't, I can't comment on it, but you don't have to be an FBI agent with 26 years of, of experience to figure that out. Gonzalez says the two hijackers, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Madar, were helped by a number of Saudis, including Omar al-Bayoumi. Bayoumi worked for the Saudi government in California and has said he simply ran into the two hijackers at a restaurant in Los Angeles and encouraged them to move to San Diego. And this is the building he, he lived in. There, he helped them find an apartment and open a bank account. The two hijackers even started flight school nearby can't sit on the sidelines when I know the truth. Gonzalez says he's under FBI orders not to talk about certain aspects of Operation Encore because of national security concerns, as is another former agent, Ken Williams, who wrote a memo before 9-11 warning terrorists were taking flight lessons in Arizona. Both men are now working as investigators for the families. The evidence is there. I've seen it, but I can't get into specifics because of protective order. In 1996, when the Qatar Tower bombing happened, the CIA already knew it was going to happen. In fact, there's evidence of that that was discovered during like whatever investigations they were doing. The actual executors of the event were people John Owen Brennan had allowed onto the grounds of Building 131 prior to the bombing. How do I know this? Because it was documented. And I have sent out FOIA requests for visitor logs and guests of the CIA station chief, John Owen Brennan, that have been denied to date. It's actually an annex in Bahrain that began the operation in 92 and was alleged to have been the mode of cable communications regarding this incident, which the CIA has denied the existence of. Remember, 19 U.S. service members lost their lives, and it was none other than former DIA at the time, Director Clapper, along now with um, a deceased General Dowing, who died of meningitis, whatever, who led the task force in the Kabar Towers investigation. The president unleashed attacks this week on career civil servants, former uh, CIA Director John Brenner, Brennan, rather, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. You've worked closely with intelligence officers throughout your decades in public life. You really believe that yeah, people well, like Brennan and Clapper are part of a deep state conspiracy? I don't know what you want to call it, but I have no regard at all for Cla Clapper and Brennan. I think they're two clowns. I mean, uh, uh, the, the other guy, the other, uh, Clapper is talking about uh, spy, spying. Which, and he doesn't realize it's spying on the Trump campaign. He's got an obligation to tell him. Brennan has been, I mean, Brennan was chief, uh, chief torturer in charge. 
Then he disowned it. Uh, then I don't know what he did with the CIA, but it, he's the most political CIA director I have ever met. Uh, and Clapper, they're not, they're not civil servants as far as I know. Really? All those decades of political service? Political appointees. In the military? In, political in... appointees. Yeah. Hey, there are a lot of people with decades of service. Some good, some bad, and some then uh, get consumed with power, and some uh, begin to lie. And in the case of Brennan, he's a political guy. He was, he was uh, Obama's chief defender. Again, the bombing was imperative to excuse the attack on U.S. soil years later. It was during that time of the bombings that many of the visa applications from Saudi Arabia were being denied, right? They were being denied because of the bombings. And in fact, visa applications of the majority of the hijackers during 9-11 were denied right before and after the bombings. But John Owen Brennan personally overrode the denials and issued the migrant visas. In fact, in 1999, myself, I was back in Saudi Arabia when visa applications were coming into question with a large delegation of Sasa persons like myself, which is a group of Security Alliance uh, intelligence contractors, just so you know. So in November of 1999, I was pregnant and I didn't know it. I personally reviewed and was made aware of approvals done by John Owen Brennan, who at the time was going to be officially promoted to deputy executive director of the CIA. And I was briefed on the Visa Express program because that was to be deployed to European nations as well as Saudi Arabia. And like the 19 U.S. service members that died at the Kabar Tower, 19 hijackers helped execute the 9-11 attacks. And all 19 of them received their visas before and after the Kabar Tower bombing. And all 19 were done with John Owen Brennan's stamp of approval from Jeddah. In fact, the deployment of Visa Express helped the support staff of less than five of the hijackers enter the United States with legal visas because you're not going to execute this plan without having people watching your back from bad boys to drivers to rentals to food to anything that you're doing. All right, I'm Mike Springman. Um, some 15 years ago now, I was chief of the visa section at the CIA's consulate at Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. In Jeddah? Yeah. People were being brought there from all over the Middle East uh, for visas to come to the United States. And I was told they were terrorists that were recruited to come to the U.S. for training and ship back to Afghanistan for fighting the Soviet soldiers. And this was, when I was there, this was between 1987 and 1989. And it wasn't until I got back to D.C. and talked to the journalist Joe Trento and a couple of other people. One was a guy connected with a local university here in D.C. and another fellow who was uh, with another government agency. Uh, but I learned that, you know, it wasn't visa fraud like I thought at the time. I thought somebody was being paid under the table for this, uh, based on a conversation I had with a guy. And um, I thought that, you know, this was really strange, but I couldn't explain it. And then when Trento and these other people started talking to me, and I said, well, this explains the whole thing. The reason why there was this pressure, the reason why these guys who were not businessmen who were not educated, who were essentially low-level clerk-type people, uh, supermarket checkers, uh, you know, guys who worked in an auto parts store, why visas were being demanded for them. 
And, you know, they, they the, when I put the pieces together from my three contacts, it was people who were being here, who were brought here, who were recruited by the CIA and this asset, Osama bin Laden, to come to the United States for training as terrorists and to return them to Afghanistan to fight with the Soviet soldiers there and kill them. This was the end of recruitment for the, uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And where they went in the U.S., I don't know. Uh, what they were taught in the U.S., I don't know. Uh, never been able to find that out. Nobody seems to have a, an inkling of it. Right before the 9-11 event, right before, over 22,000 visas were issued by the State Department to foreign nationals that weren't all Saudi either. They weren't all Saudi nationals, but they were given the stamp of approval from Jeddah without interviews. So they just went there, applied, and they, here you go, go. My understanding from talking to Celerino Castillo, who was a drug enforcement officer in Central America, was this was a favorite ploy of the CIA. They wanted to slip their guys into the United States and they would have them apply through a legitimate travel agent, uh, often through a legitimate tour group. You know, you'd have, I don't know, 20 people from um, you know, the, the church school or the, the lawyer's association or something uh, would be going to the United States and they'd get their guys in, they'd slip the paperwork and the visas in with the group, uh, the travel agent would take care of them, bring to the American diplomatic post. Um, they get their visa stamped and hand them back. You know, it's 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 cover. It's uh, nobody's there to ask questions. Uh, you're with a legitimate group. Uh, you know, why, why ask questions? There was a person who I had, and I convinced that person to drop a cable that they received. And just so you know, the reporter was actually detained. He was someone who revealed the Visa Express program, which unfortunately was only mentioned about Saudi Arabia because obviously it was people from Saudi Arabia that hijacked airplanes and all of those people from Saudi Arabia that hijacked airplanes were not all Saudis and all their visas were personally approved by John Brennan. Now let's take a look at the accounts of this gentleman's occurrence and what happened. Joel. And he's like so quiet now, such a great reporter. Reporter detained, told to reveal source at State Department briefing. Although Mowry was shocked by the detainment, he said he will continue writing about the visa system using confirmed and un but undisclosed sources. They will never deter me, he said. Now, obviously, they did deter him. He should have been, uh, you know, the Sarah Carter, the John Solomon. He was an incredible, bold man to just. At 26, just do that and just tell the truth. 
It's really, really hard. Rule of thumb, I've been told, is that roughly one-third of the people who work for the State Department don't. I mean, I've been told this by a former station chief. I've told this by, I've been told this by a guy who's a, um, uh, who was at the time uh, at the Inspector General's office at the State Department. He's since retired. Um, my estimate, I would say, might be as high as 50%, depending on where you are. Uh, but as far as JETA goes, there were three people, including myself, whom I know for certainty to have no ties, professional or familial, with any of the intelligence services, out of roughly 20 Americans at the post. For example, in the consular section, there was a part-time visa officer. He didn't work for the State Department. No one can go in to get the people out. There's small explosions still going on. In 1999, uh, I guess it was January 5th and through 8th, 2000, there was an Al-Qaeda summit in Kuala Lumpur. And all the bigwigs were there. And there were also these two cats from Saudi Arabia, um, Noah, Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. And they had their, in, in their hotel room while they were at the meeting, CIA agents busted into their room, photographed their passports, saw that they had multi-entry visas to the U.S., and then proceeded to allow them to sail into the U.S., to fly into the U.S. directly into L.A. International Airport, get off the plane without any additional screening, any screening, and did not tell the FBI's um, unit that had been set up to track Al-Qaeda that they were even in the country. When they got off the plane, they were met by someone named Omar al-Bayoumi, who is a Saudi national as well, who is said to be an employee of the Civil Aviation Authority of Saudi Arabia. He was a ghost employee. What he really was was a Saudi intelligence agent. And he took these two guys who didn't speak a word of English got them apartments, paid for their lease, and helped make sure that they got to their flight lessons in San Diego. And the FBI wasn't even told that they were in the country until they were in the final stages of executing the day of the planes operation, which was the 9-11 operation. A law enforcement action was never enacted against these two would-be hijackers, and it was because the CIA had covered up their presence and refused to tell the FBI. And now we learn through Don Canestraro's filing after he interviewed several agents who participated in Operation Encore, which was uh, the aborted long running probe into Saudi connections to the 9-11 attacks. We learn that these two hijackers had probably been recruited or had certainly been recruited by the CIA whether they knew it or not, in order to give the CIA access to Al-Qaeda. So here we have two 9-11 hijackers enjoying a direct relationship with the CIA and the Saudi intelligence services. Did the CIA cover up the presence of these assets in order to allow the attack to proceed because it would allow for wider latitude and allow them to achieve operational goals inside the Middle East, basically the war on terror? Or did they just cover it up because they didn't think such an attack would ever take place and that they want that this was their 
Hail Mary pass of gaining access into the inner circle of Al-Qaeda because these were characters who had access to Al-Qaeda. And, you know, at the time when this is taking place, the system was blinking red. That's what the 9-11 official report says. Um, And, you know, Paul Wolfowitz gave a speech uh, about a potential new Pearl Harbor as uh, in in the months before 9-11 and said only something like that would catalyze the U.S. into being able to um, expand its wars in the Middle East. So there were were all, you know, George W. Bush, the presidential daily briefing that he was given just like a a month before 9-11, and he threw it in the trash after 15 minutes. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. George Bush himself was briefed on the program. In fact, he was briefed on the whole map to victory, indicating a list of all nations the U.S. would be able to declare war with because of this event. That unnamed general you heard who told Rumsfeld, Let's listen to that so you can understand just how shameless these people, they're shameless. They are extremely shameless, but they laugh about it too. Right after 9-11, about 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to... Come in, you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq, why? He said, I don't know. (laughs) He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, No, no, he says there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like, we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later. And by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're gonna take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq, and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said well, don't show it to me. This is a leader of a nation that said this. We should not be okay with this because what if it wasn't your leader and it was someone else? How would you feel about it? You wouldn't be very happy, would you? Let's just say, what if that was Xi Jinping? Oh, we got a list. And oh, we're going to take all over all these nations. France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Czechoslovakia, and then we're going to go for the U.S. Why? I don't know. If we have a hammer, everything's got to look like a nail. How would you feel? That's not something funny. And you heard it from Bush Jr.'s mouth. He told you that. He said it 10 days after 9-11. 
Al-Qaeda was creating. Osama used to be called Usama. He was trained by the CIA. This was all planned. When I put the pieces together from my three contacts, it was people who were being here, who were brought here, who were recruited by the CIA and its asset, Osama bin Laden, to come to the United States for training as terrorists and to return them to Afghanistan to fight with the Soviet soldiers there and kill them. The poor Saudis, they had him by the cojones. I mean, we should find out what happened to Khashoggi. A lot of people aren't going to be very happy with how that comes out. Tit for tat, we shouldn't accept that. God doesn't like that. It's the U.S. government's duty. If you have this information, you know hey, the Saudi government is going, might get aggressive with you. Mm-hmm. Um, be careful when you, you know, he was, a, he was a U.S. resident, but he was a Saudi citizen. Do we, have a, do we have a duty to warn him? If there's credible intelligence that somebody is under threat of violent attack, there, that will trigger a, a process to decide about the ability to warn that individual. I don't know what type of intelligence we had before his disappearance, uh, but if it was uh, an arrest or detention or a capture of Jamal Khashoggi, he is a Saudi citizen, even though he's an American uh, resident. So I am unclear exactly whether or not that threshold for duty to warn was triggered, but it would have to have some type of threat of violence associated with it. 9-11 was how they got to you. 9-11 is how they got away with violating our privacy, throwing more people in jail, curbing our speech, becoming the thought police, and smothering us in technology like nobody's business. After 9-11, they took one of the programs I had done, or the back end part of it, and started to use it to spy on everybody in this country. So that, that was a program they created called Stellar Wind. That was the separate and compartmented from the regular activity that was ongoing because it was doing domestic spying. Uh, well, they came in guns drawn, you know, in my house. They didn't do that to the others, but they did it to me. I guess, I don't know, they thought I was probably the most dangerous of them all, so I don't know. I don't know what was in their minds, okay? So, but they did that, and they, and they came in and pointed a gun at me when I, I was getting out of the shower at the time, so they pointed a gun right at my old head, you know, said, hey. So, <laughs> I, I wasn't too upset. I just said, uh, yeah, suppose I can get a, I could get dressed here, <laughs> you know, trying to, they weren't intimidating me anyway, so. Tell me something that will uh, intimidate, in, implicate somebody in a crime, that's what they asked me. So I told them what the crime was that I knew about, and that was that, uh, uh, George Bush, Dick Cheney, Tennant, and Hayden conspired to subvert the Constitution, the constitutional process, and any number of laws, and here's how they did it, and I explained stellar wind on my back porch to all the FBI agents who weren't cleared. So they had a problem. Uh, I created a problem for them because they had a bunch of people now who weren't cleared for a very highly classified, only because it was domestic spying, by the way, was the reason it was highly classified. And what he did was reveal domestic surveillance. This is why it's classified at the highest levels. Domestic surveillance. Understand that you are being surveilled. Oh, I got nothing to hide. Nobody cares if you have nothing to hide. How do you feel that the government can predict where your life is going to be in 10 years? How do you feel that the job that you will get in five years depends on that prediction? Because when they pay for that background check, they get that score. How does that make you feel? 
How do they know how your life is going to be? This is a perversion, not only of our constitution and what we stand for, but on humanity itself. This is how you stay mesmerized. And you know what? Those that actually know all about this reality hack, that know all about these programs and put forward, that speak outside the box, are the highest on that list to get this program used against them. When weaponized, oh boy. Police in Los Angeles are trying to predict the future. We know where crime happened yesterday, but where is it going to happen tomorrow and the next day? And they're not alone. More and more departments are using data-driven algorithms to forecast crime. It's all about improving accuracy and improving our effectiveness, our efficiency, and our service to the community. So in order for them to actually execute the plan of taking over nations, they found that it would be very, very difficult for them to push it through. The plan was that they needed to ensure the continuity of government. And Clinton was being impeached. And this was a problem. George Bush Sr. came up with a fantastic plan in his, you know, in Jeb's area. The child that was left behind by the Bushes. We're going to digitize the way they vote. Because if we can see how foreigners vote, then that's how it happens. How do we do that? We need to show shortcomings in how it is. And I was actually in that meeting myself where the discussion of the hanging chads was being done. How do we remove human error and go all in on technology now that's everyone on Netscape and loving the internet and it's new? At that point, that was discussed and it was created into this big thing, but this is how they allocated funds to the Department of Defense, specifically DARPA, to come up with how to get it done and to create the software that would assist in getting it done. And you guys have heard Curtis himself confess in Congress of how he was hired by a Chinese named company and the government, and he even slipped and said, George Bush, he slipped and said it. Mr. Curtis, would you please state your full name for the record? My uh, name is Clinton Eugene Curtis. And where do you reside? Tallahassee, Florida. And what is your profession? I'm a computer programmer. Would you please speak into the microphone so the audience can hear your testimony? I'm a computer programmer. Mr. Curtis, are there programs that can be used to secretly fix elections? Yes. How do you know that to be the case? Because in October of 2000, I wrote a prototype for President Congressman Tom Feeney. Because in October of 2000, I wrote a prototype for President, for President Congressman Tom Feeney at the company I worked for in Oviedo, Florida that did just that. And we say did, did just that. It would rig an election? It would flip the vote 51-49 to whoever you wanted it to go to and whichever race you wanted to win. And would that program that you designed be something that elections officials that might be on county boards of elections could detect? They would never see it. You say he was the, the lobbyist for the voting machine company at the same time he was Speaker of the House? I don't know what the voting machine company is. He was a lobbyist for Yang Enterprises. We had NASA contracts. And, and Yang Enterprises did what? Computers? Computers. Okay, and he was your lobbyist. Your he was a lobbyist for that company, yeah. And he asked you to design a, to see, to design a code to rig an election? Yes. While he was Speaker of the Florida House? Yes. This was during or previous to the 2000 election? Yes, October, end of September. 
in order to be able to control elections because they needed to ensure that their own people that would have the ability to for the continuity of government from the minute Reagan was shot until 2020 was done. They needed to ensure that continuity. So elections was one. We can't go into all these places and just plunder. We should do it in a more peaceful way. We can create riots and then come in as the good guy and offer them ways to elect things. And so the software was created. In 2004, Paul Brinkley and Robert Gates, uh, who also then became CIA director of a very specialized division in the Department of Defense, within a year were funded and they got this done. And at that point, Curtis's, you know, software failed because, you know, they got caught, kinda. And he confessed to Congress. Where is he now in Florida? It's ridiculous how people, for the love of money, do anything. And she said, you don't understand, we need to hide the fraud in the source, in the source code. Hide the fraud, not reveal the fraud. Not reveal the fraud, because it's needed to, to control the vote in South Florida, was what she said. That's what she said. That's your knowledge, your knowledge, was this used? I have no idea. I, I was ready to leave. So as we move on, we had multiple portions. We had uh, the war plan of what they were going to do in order to dominate for oil and geography. Because, you know, not a lot of people understand just how important uh, the Middle East and the land of Turkey, geo spatially are, how important they are. They link up, you know, three continents, Africa, which is an untapped wealthy continent, Europe and Asia. And they give access to it all. And every large nation wishes to have access to that land and dominance. Now, as all of these parts, which is the let's terrorize the Americans so we can digitize them and control them. Therefore, we can create the monitoring systems that we can deploy over in other countries too. This was all in conjunction with the crown and other big leaders. Uh, such as the Chinese, uh, the Russians, sort of, not really. Gorbachev wasn't really his cup of tea. Putin played both sides of the fence very well, and you can see him coming up really hard now. On 9-11, you had this journalist called Jane Stanley. She said, a third building has collapsed. Okay, she said this. And I remember on the internet, everybody's on the internet, people analyze videos all the time. And they said, while she said it, the building was still standing. So that's really bad. How can she say WT7 collapses while it's still standing? How does she know? What more can you tell us about the Salomon Brothers building and its collapse? Well, only really what you already know. Details are very, very sketchy. There's almost a sense downtown in uh, New York behind me, down by the World Trade Centers, of uh, just an area completely closed off as the rescue workers try to do their job. But this isn't the first building that um, has suffered as a result. We know that part of the Marriott Hotel next to the World Trade Center also collapsed as a result of this huge amount of falling debris from 110 floors of two, the two twin towers of the World Trade Center. As you can see behind me, the uh, Trade Center appears to be still burning. We see these huge clouds of smoke and ash. 
9-11 was imperative. The market was going to collapse because they were going to collapse it because they wanted technology to fizzle and bust. And this is why we had the tech bubble bust. And post-2000, even though technology was rapidly advancing and people were getting more immersed in it, for some reason, everybody lost their money during the tech bubble. And you're just like, what happened, right? What happened? How do we lose money, but everything's being implemented? That's because the government took hold of it. And you were too busy worrying about your safety to look at it. And this is how you make a shift in the market. BuzzFeed dug up an old quote from Donald Trump talking about a large-scale terror attack 19 months before 9-11. In his 2000 book, The America We Deserve, Trump wrote, I really am convinced we're in danger of the sort of terrorist attacks that will make the bombing of the 1993 Trade Center look like little kids playing with firecrackers. One day, we're told that a shadowy figure with no fixed address named Osama bin Laden is public enemy number one and U.S. jet fighters lay waste to his camp in Afghanistan. He escapes back under some rock and a few news cycles later, it's on to a new enemy and a new crisis. Wait, 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 yeah. wait. wait. Mm -hmm. Okay, hold yeah. on a second. Mm -hmm. Is this really Trump before 9-11? Have you read this? Donald, this is Roland Smith. Uh, hi, Roland. You know, hi, how you doing on this kind of day? You know, at some point, we're going to put all this behind us. And you as a visionary, particularly in, uh, in New York real estate, what do you think that we ought to do as a city, as a people, uh, when all of this gets, when the morning stops, when when the dead are, are honored and, uh, and we've found out what caused it and maybe corrected it. What does the city need to do? Well, I guess the big thing that, that you really will have to do is never forget. You just can't forget that something like this happened. I was so disappointed when they closed the stock exchange, but of course, at some point, you had no choice because you want to just say, the hell with it, you're going forward, nothing's going to change. But the fact is, something has changed very dramatically. And I think one of the very sad things is going to be when you look at the skyline of New York, which has become so emblazoned in your own memory, and then when you look at the skyline after 2001, and you're going to see a skyline without these two buildings, you're going to say, what happened? People won't believe it. You know, when you showed your children or your grandchildren in years to come what New York looked like in the year 2000, and then what New York looked like just a year later... They're going to say, what happened? Donald, it, it, uh, in, the year, in, in the year 2000, Donald, you considered running for president. If, if, if you had done that and if you had been successful, what do you think uh, you'd be doing right now? Well, I'd be taking a very, very tough line, Alan. I mean, uh, you know, most people feel they know uh, uh, at least approximately the group of people that did this and where they are. But, um, boy, would you have to take a hard line on this. This just can't be tolerated, and it's got to be very, very stern. This is, as you and I were discussing before, Alan, this was probably worse than Pearl Harbor. Many more people are dead, and, and you know, they don't know, they have no idea, but uh, I have somebody that was down there who witnessed at least 10 people jumping out of the building from 70 and 80 stories up in the air. Donald, you're probably the best known builder, uh, particularly of, of, of great buildings in the city. There's a great deal of question about whether or not the damage and, and the ultimate destruction of the buildings was caused by the airplanes, by architectural defect, or possibly by bombs or, or aftershocks. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it was an architectural defect. You know, the World Trade Center was always known as a very, very strong building. Don't forget, that took a big bomb in the basement. Now, the basement is the most vulnerable place because that's your foundation. 
and it withstood that. And I got to see that area about three or four days after it took place because one of my structural engineers actually took me for a tour because he did the building. And I said, I can't believe it. The building was standing solid and half of the columns were blown out. I mean, so this was an unbelievably powerful building. Uh, if you know anything about the structure, it was one of the first buildings that was built from the outside. The steel, the reason the World Trade Center had such narrow windows is that in between all the windows, you had the steel on the outside. See, so you had the steel on the outside of the building. Uh, Twin Towers has the support piers uh, on the exterior of the building. The outside of the building was a mesh of steel. That's why when I first looked, and you had big, heavy I-beams, when I first looked at it, I couldn't believe it because there was a hole in the steel. For as far as the eye can see, and you can tell right here at the top of this tower, there's a huge gaping hole, flames still inside, thick black smoke still coming out. We have not been able to see what, if any kind of an aircraft, is inside the building. This is the best vantage point right here, and as you can see, just a huge gaping hole throughout the entire side of this tower right now. And this is steel that was, you remember the, the width of the windows of the World Trade Center, folks? I think, you, you know, if you were ever up there, they were quite narrow. 18 and a half inches, exactly how much is windows from 106 all the way down to the ninth floor. And in between was this heavy steel. I said, how could a plane, even a plane, even a 767 or 747 or whatever it might have been, how could it possibly go through the steel? I happen to think that they had not only a plane, but they had bombs that exploded almost simultaneously because I just can't imagine anything being able to go through that wall. Most buildings are built with the steelers on the inside around the elevator shaft. This one was built from the outside, which is the strongest structure you can have and it was almost just like a uh, like a can of soup. You know, Donald, we were looking at pictures all morning long of that plane coming into uh, building number two, and when you see that uh, approach the the far side, and then all of a sudden, within a matter of a millisecond, the explosion pops out the other side. Right. I just think that there was a plane with more than just fuel. I think, obviously, they were very big planes. They were going very rapidly because. I was also watching where the plane seemed to be not only going fast, it seemed to be coming down into the building. So it was getting the speed from going downhill, so to speak. Uh, it just seemed to me that to do that kind of destruction is even more than a big plane, because you're talking about taking out steel, the heaviest caliber steel that was used on a building. I mean, these buildings were rock solid. And, uh, you know, it's just an amazing, it's an amazing thing. It's, this country is different today and, and it's going to be different than it ever was for many years to come. Very profound statement and very true. Donald, uh, one last question for you. Uh, given the, the, the magnitude of, 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 of how much of American commerce took place within the Twin Towers, what do you, as you're an expert on this, what do you think is going to be the fallout over the next many several weeks, months, and even years, given what we have lost uh, in terms of those buildings going down and, and all that was within it? Well, I, I, as an example, Alan, and you might use them too, but I have an insurance company that was on the 102nd floor of the World Trade Center. They're gone. I don't know. Their offices are no longer there. They're wiped out. Um, the Morgan Stanley Group, you know, Morgan Stanley, a big, powerful firm, they had 50 stories in the building, gone. I mean, you're talking about some firms that are just gone. Many firms had all of their offices, as you know, in the World Trade Center. It was 8 million square feet. 8 million square feet is the size of some cities. 
each floor was almost a, a city in itself, and they had 110 floors or so. So, um, you know, many firms that were easily recognizable for those of us in the financial world, for those of us that read the papers and see the financial pages, they're going to be gone. I mean, they're just not going to exist anymore. They're gone. Donald and Trump. Many of the people are gone with them. Donald Trump, thank you so very much for joining well, us. Thank we, you all. we really Good appreciate luck. it. No, no, really quickly, though. I mean, so, Willie, that was... 2000. 2000. And a book he wrote in the year 2000. Yeah. Well, it was published in 2000. He could have written in 1999. Probably. Exactly. He might have been more precious. So he predicted, basically predicted the attacks from Osama bin Laden. Nearly 20 years after 9-11, pre-trial hearings resume in the case against five men accused of aiding the hijackers. Among the five is a Pakistani national regarded as the principal architect of the attack. Proceedings resume today after facing numerous delays. The last in-person hearing was in February of 2020. So while we talk about the Guantanamo trials for 9-11, it is incomplete because the masterminds are missing. You would have to have former impeached president of the United States, Bill Clinton, in his capacity of president of the United States and impeached first lady, Hillary Clinton, for initiating the plan. Literally, it's called the plan. Former CIA director John Owen Brennan, in his capacity as CIA briefer to impeach President Clinton, executive assistant to CIA director George Tenet, CIA station chief in Saudi Arabia, chief of staff to CIA director George Tenet, drafting the agency portion of the plan. Former DNI director James Clapper, in his capacity as DIA director under impeached President Clinton and as NGA director, assisting the cover up of the plan. And Donald Rumsfeld, in his capacity as Secretary of Defense, for implementing the war operation and the military-industrial complex privatized sign to facilitate and capitalize the plan. And finally, former President George Bush Jr., in his capacity as President, for knowingly and willingly allowing the plan. At the same time, the Department of Defense under Rumsfeld was working really, really hard and fast on biological warfare. And this is where anthrax comes in. That is what he was working on. He was more of the person thinking that what we have to do is control the people from the inside out, not only from outside forces, but inside. Either we make them dependent on medication or we change them where the strongest survive and therefore we can provide everything they need and they'll be happy. I think we've heard Klaus say the same words, Klaus Schwab, where you'll own nothing and love it. And just so you understand, Hillary Clinton wanted to do everything Obama did. In the 90s, when they took office, and I say they because we all know that she manages everything. She wanted to be president, but the 90s wouldn't let her. So he just pretended to be president while she was really in charge. Hillary Care was supposed to take into effect. It was supposed to be put together properly. They needed to propel the harnessing of information. It was impeached President Clinton that was struggling on how to deploy surveillance and data collection systems within the United States. And this is where the idea was born. Digitizing citizen records from birth to death 
monitoring all phone calls and communications, collecting facial recognition, health data aggregation. That was Hillary Care, but Obamacare did it for them. Controlled and documented travel and doing that with the cyber oligarchs we see today, which DARPA helped create. It wasn't that we advanced in technology. They harnessed all these cyber oligarchs from people in their garages like Steve Jobs. All of these people were harnessed and made part of this fourth unelected branch of government to deploy the plan. Bush Sr. started the process. Brennan and Clapper were responsible for ensuring the recruitment in 1995 through 2001 was completed for a scheme to terrorize Americans and others around the world into submission by giving an avenue for solutions by law and implementing technology that would assist. I saw the implementation. And so the plan was born. This was the plan. The plan was for dominance. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. I want to reassure the American people that full, the full resources of the federal government are working to assist local authorities to save lives and to help the victims of these attacks. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and Cold War. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations, a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. George H.W. Bush, the 41st President of the United States, he served from 1989 to 1993. Though George H.W. Bush was director of the Central Intelligence Agency for only a short time, from January 1976 to January 1977, their headquarters building in Northern Virginia is named after him. I know that I speak for every man and woman in this place today when I say, welcome home, George and Barbara Bush. It's great to have you back. Do you think Congress has the authority, should have the authority to release secret material? No, I don't. Why not? I don't think that any branch, uh, that the, the legislative branch of government should unilaterally be empowered to release uh, secret documents. I simply don't feel that way. We cannot run an intelligence business on that kind of basis. And part of it's secret, and I'm going to see that it stays secret. You take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. President. Mr. President and Mr. Speaker, for two centuries, we've done the hard work of freedom. And tonight, we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order, 
where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Such is a world worthy of our struggle and worthy of our children's future. But right now it's a critical time because we know that we not only fight for Ukraine, we fight for this new world order for the democratic countries. America will lead by defending liberty and justice because they are right and true and unchanging for all people everywhere. No nation owns these aspirations, and no nation is exempt from them. We have no intention of imposing our culture, but America will always stand firm for the non-negotiable demands of human dignity, the rule of law, limits on the power of the state, respect for women, private property, free speech, equal justice, and religious tolerance. America will take the side of brave men and women who advocate these values around the world, including the Islamic world, because we have a greater objective than eliminating threats and containing resentment. We seek a just and peaceful world beyond the war on terror. In this moment of opportunity, a common danger is erasing old rivalries. America is working with Russia and China and India in ways we have never before to achieve peace and prosperity. In every region, free markets and free trade and free societies are proving their power to lift lives. Together, with friends and allies from Europe to Asia and Africa to Latin America, we will demonstrate that the forces of terror cannot stop the momentum of freedom. When I called our troops into action, I did so with complete confidence in their courage and skill. And tonight, thanks to them, we are winning the war on terror. These are the people that gave us vaccines to control us, medications to enslave us, fear to further enslave us, fear and questions to further divide us, social justice so they can divide us even more. This is their plan, straight from start to finish. This was their plan all along. It wasn't extremely intricate. It was very well distributed. It was very well executed. And everyone played their part correctly. Holy Think shit. about it. 9-11 happened. We were convinced all of this was okay. Oh and you know what I did? I watched them do it in other countries. I am not worthy of any redemption. You might say, why didn't you say anything sooner? Where was I gonna go? Was I supposed to go to the president who probably got the generals that told on Rumsfeld excommunicated? 
We should all find out who that is. Was I supposed to go to the media that they own? So the question you should be asking yourself is why hasn't anything been done about this? And I'm shocked that those that have been in office since this happened still haven't been able to nail them. Because there's a lot of me's that have come out. Yes, many of them are gone now. Because you're not allowed to flap your mouth. But I'm telling you the whole story, the whole thing that I know of from firsthand. I can tell you that this isn't supposed to end well at all. See, there was a cable that was leaked, trying to get them in trouble, trying to make them stop what they were doing, only because I was concerned about the bio-warfare more than anything, because of the programs they were already deploying in Africa through these private companies. And this is why I call them cyber oligarchs, because biotechnology is considered technology, so it falls under that. The concerns that we should all have as a nation is that sometimes you have to start at the beginning to fix things. It's been over 20 years, so there's a lot of people that could come forward and speak because they're statute of limitations. And if anything, there could be a statute of limitation in regards to John Brennan, but there's other things that can tie it back to that, so we're good. And that'll come when I have to testify against him at some point. They took all your rights away by putting you in fear. They created an enemy that didn't exist. It was our own people that orchestrated this. And so what all of us should be doing right now, as a nation, both left and right, is demanding that they be held accountable. Because they have planned this. 9-11, this time around, should be about truth. There's another one. There was another one. I'm running away very, very quickly. There are more explosions. They're dropping from the top floors of the tower uh, closest to the highway. Obviously, they had two choices to be. You would hope that people apparently there was an explosion of some kind here at the According Pentagon. to some estimates, we cannot track 2.3 trillion dollars. Flex an agency that must be We are being watched. Government has a secret system. Two thousand nine hundred and ninety-six people killed. Men from my company, we have another hundred.